Back and live. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and welcome to Arc City. The Arc City Podcast is presented by Stiefel Financial. Go to stiefel.com to learn more. I can't believe it's already the end of the season. Kind of flew by. I was hoping to get more podcasts done this year, but uh, I'll have to get them done this summer maybe. Actually, if you would listen to podcasts in the summer, shoot me an email or DM me. And if I get enough responses, uh, I'll actually do it because I have a bunch of people that I've been talking to, a bunch of guests that I'm potentially going to have on and might as well get started this summer. But I'm taking a break now because I'm back in school. I do school every spring. Anyways, the skiing history nugget this week is about the first Quebec Kandahar downhill, which was held at Mont-Tremblant and is fitting because Laurent Saint-Germain foran the Noram slalom that I raced at Mont-Tremblant this year, and that is where I asked her to be on the podcast. So, without further ado, Canadian slalom skier and recently crowned world champion Laurent Saint-Germain. Laurent Saint-Germain, welcome to Arc City. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Um, so I saw you uh, in person a few days ago, and we were actually going to do the interview then, but I was racing and I was busy and we didn't end up doing it. But it was fun to see you, and it was also fun to see you forerunning the Norams that I was racing. Uh, was that fun for you? Yeah, it was pretty fun. It was actually quite crazy with the four runs in the day and it's just inspection run inspection run and I was actually pretty tired after the four four runs I can imagine you guys racing like like I didn't have the stress of racing so it must have been quite intense yeah I was so tired at the end of that day um yeah <laughs> um tell me about that first run did all of the forerunners go out I don't know I was a fourth forerunner but I went out at this same spot as everybody else so, but I felt so bad because I know like when you forerun you're supposed to finish and I was like oh no I'm not supposed to not finish and I got back in the course and I got to the bottom and after that I saw everyone go out so I was like oh I, yes <laughs> I'm the same as everyone else so it's okay <laughs> yeah um yeah that was a wild gate and I think like two-thirds of the field went out on that first <laughs> run at that gate so there's no hard feelings there um, I, I guess we kind of jumped into this interview. It, I felt kind of abrupt, but I want to start off by um, saying congratulations on the gold medal at the World Champs. Like that's so cool. And Thanks. I, I actually I just talked with AJ Guinness a couple weeks ago about his silver medal at the World Champs, and it was a World Champs filled with all of these outside people coming in and having amazing performances it was fun to talk to him about um i actually didn't talk to him about that performance talk to him about the other breakout performance he had but <laughs> it's like I'm, i i can't get enough of these stories uh so i would love to hear your story from whatever start whatever natural start and finish you have and just tell us like about that day and maybe what led up to that we're going to cover your backstory too after, but I just like love to hear that story. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was a pretty crazy day. Uh, I was definitely not expecting that. The my season was not going super well. I hadn't been able to do two runs in a row, and um, I had a couple of good first runs, bad second run, or like I hiked three times I think this year, so it's not a really good ratio so far. But um. Leading up to, to the race, the two weeks before, I was skiing pretty well in training, and it was I was happy with how I was skiing and how I was um, feeling mentally, and I knew I could do well, but I didn't think I could do that well. <laughs> um, but it's actually the, the first day I actually let myself believe that I could have a really, really good performance based on how I was training and, and skiing well. And um, But yeah, it was pretty crazy, and really really stressful in between runs and lots of up and downs throughout the day too but um yeah it was quite insane <laughs> <laughs> yeah i can imagine so did you come into the day with a certain confidence what did the day feel like when you started out was it kind of like i could win today did that thought ever go through your brain or was it just kind of a quiet confidence of like oh we'll see what happens 
I definitely did not think I could win. <laughs> um, <laughs> I knew, <laughs> um, like I knew a podium could be possible. Like if there was a time I was skiing well in the season was was there and. I actually started being stressed the night before. I did not sleep well at all the night before because I was uh, pretty nervous. And But I usually perform well under pressure. So I was like, oh, I feel like it, it could be good. It could help me. And in throughout the whole day, I was really, really nervous. But I still felt like quite calm. And like my body felt really good. And I felt calm, relaxed, and, and ready to ski well. And I just felt really in the moment and I guess yeah I can say I, I felt pretty confident I, I didn't feel confident like yeah I can I can crush everyone you know but mm -hmm. I felt confident that I could I could ski well and um just tr really trust how I was skiing and not think about the result yeah and when I saw you push out of the gate and ski those first few turns second run I was watching with a few other people and we were like oh okay like she means <laughs> business because some people, you know, you were in second, right? After the, after this first third. round, third. third, and some people in that position, you're in a medal position. You've never had a world cup podium before. I, I can imagine that some people, many people would be a little nervous or, or a little cautious, but you put it down. And there were several times in that run where I was like, oh no, she's going to go out of the course. <laughs> and you had like, it, you were just on that limit which was really fun to watch. Was that like a conscious decision? Like I'm going for it. Yeah. Between it was probably the, <laughs> the longest time between the runs. I, I looked at my, my clock so many times and time was not moving fast enough. It went so slow, but already when I came down and I was already surprised to be in, in the third place. And, uh, right after when I, I went back in the finish and, um, Ali was there and, I I told her, oh no, shit! Now I'm gonna be I'm gonna be really nervous for second run, and she told me that it was I shouldn't be because I just did a run like I was doing in training, and it it really calmed me down. And I was like, oh, oh, okay, that's good. Like I didn't do anything out of the ordinary that I never did before, so that really helped me um, be yeah. a bit less stressed. And um, but at the, at the start of second run, I was really really nauseous and um I knew that if I didn't go as hard as I could like I, I really wanted the podium and if I was going to go 50% or go safe and I was going to be more pissed and more bad at myself and have, mad at myself and have more regret than if I just skied really hard and went out so it worked out <laughs> yeah it did <laughs> it was it was cool to see too because watching Michaela Michaela won the first run and she was coming down the course and you could tell with her body language, she just wanted a medal and, or, 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 or she, she, what she thought that she could win. I think I am not, I don't go inside. Her <laughs> I'll have to talk to Michaela about this later. But it looked like from her body language, she thought she could win by just skiing down the course and having solid turns. And I don't think she realized that she was contending with someone who had just totally sent it. And I know it, you know, it, that must have been cool to see like probably someone you've you've um someone's technique maybe you've looked at before someone you've maybe looked up to as a competitor yeah definitely and watching her run after because honestly in the finish I didn't even watch after <laughs> after I came down in first and I knew I was gonna have a podium for me the race was over in my head I I, <laughs> I totally forgot there's other people coming down it was just like, cool I have enough I'm, I'm good <laughs> and um yeah, and it's yeah, watching her run after um after like two days later, it was surprising to me that she didn't ski at her full potential because she's been in this position so many times and um she definitely had didn't have her best run and but even like it's not just me that's skied really well, like Wendy hammered like crazy and yeah. if it wasn't from the from the straddle, I think she would have crushed the race and um so she didn't get her well it it's part of ski racing um that well, day I, I, yeah yeah and i guess that was my point is like yeah. ski racing like big moments uh are rewarded to the people that that send it and i was looking back at your wikipedia page and you have had good results in your like in all of these high stakes competitions like at your first world championships in 2019 you were sixth in the slalom which I imagine was probably a, a result better than you're expecting. 
yes that was by far my my best also yeah <laughs> yeah um do you do you think there's anything like i had in my first episode of this podcast arc city i did with julia mancuso and i talked to her about why she thinks that she just shows up at big races she like she has just a kind of this crazy um track record of showing up at big races but not as much in, in other world cups she told me it's because she found like the daily weekly grind of world cup races kind of tedious and boring and then a you know a big race would come around she'd go oh this is fun like i'm really gonna <laughs> get excited for this i don't know if, if that relates to you at all or if you have a different sort of way you thought about it yeah, I think I, I perform well under pressure, like I said before. And those days that are like the the one-day event, like a NCAA championship or um, world champs, it's it's like you want to perform on that day. And um, it's not that World Cups are not boring, but sometimes I I think I get kind of in the routine of, of World Cups. And um, I'm usually the person that is... Uh, underactivated I sometimes I feel too <laughs> too chill I need to hype myself up and that's why when I I feel a bit of stress and I feel like I, I really care and I really want it it's when I'm like oh okay it should it's good and I'm I think I'm I'm pretty good at, at using it in my advantage and um, I think that's why probably I I do well in those big events yeah that makes sense so let's bring it on back to like the beginning of your story. I, uh, I gathered a little Intel from your brother. I saw him at the Noram, so I was kind of bugging him. So uh -oh. I've got, a, I've got a few like, like good pieces of info. Um, but so he was saying you guys grew up, um, kind of on the side of, uh, Mont St. Anne. Yeah. Yeah. We're like two minutes from the mountain. Gotcha. And, and so was that the kind of thing where you just skied every day or? Yeah, we started skiing at like three um, and we joined the ski club at what, probably five. <laughs> and um, we had M&M races um, at the bottom of the hill and you got like little M&Ms at the bottom and stuff. And I always loved chocolate, so that definitely helped me. <laughs> but um, I was never really like that competitive as a kid. I just loved skiing and we went every weekend with my, my parents or in the club. And um, I just always enjoyed it. And it was always part of our family winter routine yeah were your parents ski racers um my mom was always a skier but never raced and my dad was um i think he raced like alpine but he mostly did moguls later on and uh, he did the mobile pro tour later but gotcha. i never did moguls really well like in the afternoon with my dad but never raced or wanted to race moguls <laughs> Yeah. When would you say that it kind of switched from, oh, this is fun. I like ski racing, but I'm not super serious about it to like, oh, I, I'm, ac I'm actually going to make a career out of this. It's funny because I always love the stories of like the kids that have the posters on the wall with the Olympic rings and everything. And I was really, really not that kid. I probably started knowing I was good at like 15 or 16 like in fist when i scored good points and people were telling me like well it's really good for your first races i was like oh cool <laughs> <laughs> and um yeah it's more when i made the quebec team at like 17 18 that um i wanted to to perform and and improve and uh, i just made my my way up slowly and well made my way up slowly i had a lot of up and downs and cutting from teams and whatever but um yeah it was more at 17 18 that I I was like oh I guess I can be good at this if I if I work hard and do it for a long time so that's cool and then did you go you, you were on the Quebec team did you when did you go to college what how old were you when you ended up going to UVM I started 20 years old so I did two years on the Quebec team then one year on Devo um, and then I got cut from Devo and then went to, to UVM. Okay. And then you did four straight years at UVM, right? Skiing for them? Yeah. Well, I took a year off um, for the Olympics in uh, in Pyeongchang. So I did one year fully with um, with UVM. And then I had really good results at, at the end of the season and re-qualified for, for the national team and then started doing both my, my second year. 
Gotcha. And I, people love to talk about the college circuit and why don't like more people, you know, go that route and that should be a development route. I'm sure you have good things to say about it. Um, I guess it's a pretty open-ended question, but you know, like tell me about skiing in college and, and how you think it was beneficial for you. It was the best for my career, I think, is I learned so much about how to coach myself and um, analyze a lot more video. I was lucky I had the three really, really good um, girls on the team my, my first year with um, Kristina Ristrensen, Elisa Terfrey, and, um, and Ellie Torwill that also did um, the national team and UVM at the same time. So I knew if I would make it back on the team, it would be, it would be possible for me to do both. And uh, but yeah, it was so great, and it definitely helped with my my love of skiing and love of competing because competing as a team makes it so different. And probably still, well, maybe not now after after World Champs, but before World Champs, <laughs> um, my first NCAA championship was definitely the race I was the most stressed because it was the first time that my my race would affect not just me, it would affect the team. And it definitely helped me deal with stress. And it's it's such a, such a different adrenaline when you have to really go fast to help the team, but not go out because you make zero points. And it's it's totally a different concept. And but it's it just brings ski racing as a, a different type of competition with um, helping each other and it's totally different and it was so fun and I learned so much. Yeah. I've experienced that too. I only raced one year in college, only raced a few college races, uh, go big green, but um, it, it was like, it was so fun and it's fun to have, like to be contributing to your team and to have that team to represent. And actually you're the Canadian women's slalom team right now is a lot of college skiers. You got Ali Nellmeyer who skis for Middlebury, Amelia Smart who skied for Denver, you skied for UVM. Do you think that you guys bring a more like a better team atmosphere to your World Cup slalom team because of those college experiences? Yeah, we definitely know how how that can make a difference and how we can help each other. Um, hopefully, more girls can can also go to um, college and bring that team atmosphere too but I think in general I I feel like I don't know if it's just because of college or I feel like North Americans are I have a better team spirit in general I think we know also we're usually underdogs and we we need to help each other more than other nations that are can be more individual and have like private program or whatsoever but um I think it's definitely more in our culture in the first place too so yeah, I think that's a good point. Um, I was going to ask about um, your brother because going back to growing up, he's, he's older, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, did, did yeah, he... he's one year, one year and a half. So we were two years in skiing difference, but only one year at school. So we grew up close. <laughs> did, he, did he have an impact on your skiing? And I, and I ask, I bring him up because I've been racing against him this year and getting to know him a little bit and it's cool because he uh like quit his his basically desk job right to to go back <laughs> to global racing and try to make the dream happen and there's so many guys on global who are are past their you know expiration dates like supposedly according to their national teams but are making really impressive things happen um but so going back to childhood did he have an impact on your skiing Probably a bit later when we were young, he was definitely, he's a definitely more competitive guy than me. He loves competition. Like he starts a new sport and he wants to compete in it. Like he cannot do just a sport to like for fun, to chill. Like he just loves competition. And as for me, when I was a kid, I was just more like, oh, is this fun? I'm going down, blah, blah, blah. And like, I was singing Christmas songs. I was always going down as a kid and stuff. And <laughs> So um, it was more later on when I, I really, like like I said, um, that I'm more on the Quebec team when I, I wanted to to do this and be become a ski racer and be more competitive. And he definitely helped me. Like he was for sure my like first coach, real coach and um, 
still to this day we still like watch video together and That's it was cool yeah it was really helpful for me especially in difficult times when you know coaches you're like oh, i feel like what did they say it doesn't help me or it, it they say different things and to really discuss with him to try to make it work all together and think about one thing and just he's the person that knows me the, the best so it's he has the best advice too so I, and he can tell me when i'm just being a baby and just not <laughs> just <laughs> complaining for the reason you know um so you know it was definitely really great to to have him and it's i'm so glad he's back skiing too because um he was an engineer for four years and he's he can still teach me about skiing even if i've been doing this for technically longer than him now since he took a break even if he's older <laughs> oh yeah that's right yeah yeah <laughs> when i was talking to him he told me this story i didn't realize this so you at one of your races you stepped into the starting gate and realized you didn't at a world cup you didn't have your shin guards yeah. <laughs> and then you said, oh, screw it. I don't have time to try to find shin guards. Raced without shin guards, hitting gates to your knees, and you got 11th. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I Actually, I think I was like ninth first run. I had a better first run than my second run. Oh, I can imagine. Um, yeah. But yeah, it was like three three people before I went. My um, One of the technicians hit my, my shins and... I, he was looking at me and I thought he was going like to tell me like oh let's go I was like oh that's weird that he's hitting my shin so let's go and I was like oh yeah let's go like <laughs> he was like no your shin pads and then I looked I looked down and I'm just like oh no <laughs> and then yeah the technician was like oh maybe they'll like you guys there but by the time all of this happened I was next in the start it's like there's no time I need to go and I was like you stupid <laughs> and and then I just went. but honestly I think I could really just focus and every time I I hit the gates I could really feel them on my shins <laughs> and it just yeah. made me be in, in tempo and um yeah I felt like I was like hitting the gate close and really attacking and but then when we got to the last pitch I knew there was a flush <laughs> and then I started thinking about the flush and I was like oh I feel like that one's gonna hurt and then yeah the last couple of gates were hurting a bit and then my suit was all burnt and my shins were pounding in the finish <laughs> but yeah I'm never gonna forget them again <laughs> yeah I bet not yeah that's yeah. crazy that's crazy and it and like you push out of the gate and the first gate didn't hurt or and you're like oh here we go or I, I, you just didn't yeah, hurt didn't most hurt of the way bad. i was like yeah i was cautious i guess and the yeah first gate or two i was like oh i can like really feel them you know i could feel the resistance but it didn't hurt that bad well it didn't hurt at first and so i was like oh okay cool i can do this and then i kept going but yeah the mo when i was probably like two thirds down, then it's starting being a, a bit more painful. <laughs> yeah, I bet. I had pretty big bruises after. Apparently there was some commentators that thought I had special shin guards under my suit, like custom made and stuff. And I didn't. <laughs> it was, yeah, just, just a suit. <laughs> do it, doing your own stunts. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Since 1890, Stiefel has been committed to safeguarding the money of others as if it were their own. That means more than just building a portfolio. It means they're invested in you and your future success. It means their advisors are real people, not robots or algorithms. And it means doing what's best for you, not just people like you. Stiefel is one of the oldest firms on Wall Street because they do things the way they should be done, and they've done it that way for over 130 years. Stiefel, since 1890. Visit stiefel.com to learn more. S-T-I-F-E-L dot com. Stiefel Nicholson Company, Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. A couple of, I've got a couple of uh, topics that I want to hit. And one of them is, is kind of like what you would say to young girls getting into the sport, because girls have a slightly higher rate of dropping out of the sport kind of when they hit like the U16 level. And I'm just wondering how because ski racing is is one of the one of the sports in the world that really puts women on a close uh uh visibility level 
to men, you know, like women's world mm -hmm. cups are, are very popular, especially on TV. Uh, and I don't know, like, do you, do you find it has been empowering for you as a woman? Um, I don't know if you have any comments on that. Yeah, definitely. I think, um, especially now with, you know, in many nations, budget cuts are there and sports it, raising money is difficult. So women have to be better earlier because we definitely grow faster. We've worked on puberty before the guys and we're expected to be better before. And um, all the stats for first podium or first qualified to the team, it's all younger and it's definitely a bit difficult for for girls sometimes that don't have the same growing path as other girls and for me it was I made the team at at 20 and some of my teammates have made the team at 17 and I had my first podium at 28 and I think sometimes we we think when we're not, not good young it's because we're never going to be good but it's really, and that works for, for girls and guys, you know, it, for me, what kept me skiing is that I love the sport. And I think it's really important to, to really trust your love for the sport that you're going to improve and not just think that because you're not good young, you're not going to be good later. Just if you put in the work, it actually works. <laughs> yeah. I get, yeah, I guess I tried to ask a lot in one question, <laughs> um, <laughs> but, but you make a really, really good point because uh, I think that, you know, national team criteria, a lot of times, um, or just coaches looking at who has potential, they, they make a blanket statement of, oh, girls develop sooner than guys. So if a girl's yeah. not good by this age, then, then, you know, we're, we're, we're giving up on them. And, but you are, you actually, the whole, uh, Canadian women's slalom team is a great example of girls who've gone through college and are now starting to be successful. Um, Paula Moulton on the women's team is a great example mm -hmm. of that. And it's, I mean, it's a really good point. What do you think is the key to, so a girl going to college with World Cup aspirations, what was the most important part of that? Because it's not an easy path and not everybody is guaranteed to make it if they're just patient, you know, patience alone isn't going to get you to the World Cup. What would, what would you say is the most important, you think? I think if you want to do both, you need, I think it's doable to ski race and to do college fairly easily if you want to put in the work. But I think if you want to do college and be on the World Cup, you need to want to go to school. <laughs> I don't think it's, um, it's pretty hard. It's a lot of time. I think you need to love skiing and to love school to a certain extent <laughs> I think we, we, you don't need to love school as much as ski racing um but I think you really want to be able to do both and it's not um because it's not easy it's not true that you can take out all the stress for after the after your your world cup career to have a degree is takes out all the stress it's a lot of stress during so I think to be able to do both you really need to love both or at least like school and love skiing. <laughs> yeah. Just a cursory amount of, of love for school. <laughs> so you, you like school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I guess, yeah. so you, you majored in something at UVM, but now you're changing that major, right? Yeah. I majored in um, computer science and now I'm doing another degree in uh, biomedical engineering. Okay. And do you have any specific, uh, goals on what you want to do after ski racing with that i really want like biomechanics and um, robotics so either working to make a uh, design prosthesis um for handicapped people or even for for para athletes would be the dream <laughs> to, to work with like sit sit skiers or design for like biking and to i love sport and i i want everyone to be able to do sports and um, or the other branch that um, that I like is um, surgical robotics or medical robotics in general. That would be pretty cool too. Oh, that's really cool. Yeah, <laughs> that that reminds me actually. I I need to get a para skier on Arc City, and I've been meaning to do it. Um, 
So I definitely will do that. And that's more to my <laughs> listeners than to you. I just <laughs> was thinking of that. Uh, have you, have you talked to any Paris skiers or, um, or, or, or really thought about or talked to people in that realm before? Not really. Um, I'll need to do an internship at some point to, um, to graduate. I need to do an internship and that would be a really, really cool field. But I talked to, um, some of the para coaches and, um, they told me basically right now all the, the prosthesis or helpers are just <laughs> not random people, but people that love the sport and that just like building stuff and try to, to make things fit to, to, to help the athletes and make them better. So um, I think it's going to be hard maybe to find, <laughs> to find that um, company or where to do an internship, but I'll start my search earlier than later for sure. Yeah. And I'm, I'm sure it's a question you get a lot. Oh, I remembered. I did do a para <laughs> interview. I did it with Ralph Green. So if anybody's listening and has listened to the Ralph Green episode, it's one of my least listened to ones, but it's one of my favorite stories. So anyway, uh, there's that. <laughs> Um, but you know, that is, sorry, I'm going a little ADHD here, but that, uh, uh, you know, people asking you about what you're doing after ski racing, I get that question a lot. Uh, and I, I don't, I think it's an unavoidable one, but it is fun to talk about and it's fun to acknowledge that there is a world yeah. outside of ski racing. One of the other topics I wanted to talk about was, and I don't know if you can comment on this at all, but. Alpine Canada has been struggling to fund the Canadian team, which is not a secret. I don't know if there's anything you can say about that or if people can donate anywhere or if like, <laughs> like what's going on? Yeah, it's been a difficult couple of years. Well, you know, especially with, with COVID and everything. And I think everyone, not even just like um, Alpine Canada, but other sports or other um, charities are struggling to raise money and, uh, there's definitely spots to donate. Uh, you can donate on the on the website. You can become an Alpine Canada donor. Um, and but yeah, it's not it's not easy. I think they're doing their best, but um, it's hard. You know, in in Canada, it's all the races. Well, same as in the U.S., all the races are at at night, like in the middle of the night, and they're not on TV. So it's it's hard to promote a sport that you don't get that much visibility. You know. Yeah, I think that's one of the toughest things that the U.S. is dealing with that right now. I mean, we've got, if you want to watch races, there's three different platforms. It's Peacock, Ski and Snowboard Live, and Outside. And it's just a, it's kind of a mess to try to be a regular uh, week-in and week-out fan of ski racing. But there's there's got to be, there's got to be a way. Did you grow up watching ski racing on TV or, or anything like that? Not really, because, um, well, later on when we could record the races at night that were that were on TV then I I watched them but I didn't watch that much like I don't remember um watching like slalom women's slalom races or women's GS um I knew it was more like I'm I more I had more idols by like Melanie Sorgeon coming to my home hill this is from my home hill or Jen Simard who um podium that a few world cups also that she was from quebec and from the newspaper and um more looking into who is um the who is on the women's team right now and doing research online more than really watching ski racing at home yeah and now you are filling that role of being the inspirational per person <laughs> when we were at the races at mont Tremblant the uh you know we, we were on the podium and they had this big stage uh with with, bit, with loud speakers and music playing and they put all the the guys from the noram podiums up there and the kids were clapping but they weren't going that crazy and then <laughs> the, the podiums were done and they said okay laurent saint germain's gonna sign stuff for you and the kids squealed and went crazy and all the kids in the montreblanc jackets were lining up to see you was that a good feeling I imagine. Yeah, it, was, it was pretty cool, especially at uh, Eric Gay's hill, you know, to be uh, <laughs> to be at his hill and and had a pretty good crowd too, wanting to me to sign a helmet and even a lot of the kids I signed the bags, helmet, whatever they had Val Grenier's um, signature on Eric Gay and some of them mm -hmm. had Mitch also. So it was 
pretty good to to be on their helmet and having them like see me as and maybe not an idol but some someone to look up to yeah and and speaking of Val because she just won her first World Cup this year uh and you talk about eric gay but but this new generation of of Canadian skiers uh you know cam Alexander had a medal at the world champs you guys had a bronze medal in the team event right mm-hmm. yeah and then you had the gold um uh, Jack Crawford had the had the gold not out of nowhere but kind of as an outside favorite and Team Canada seems to be really showing up this year is there anything special about your team i like is there is there a vibe amongst the canadians like this is our year like or is this just coincidence yeah we had our best world champ in history actually at the maribel yeah the most medal we've ever had and um yeah i think we're we had a pretty good vibe we're all pretty close and um for sure guys and girls we don't see each other that much on the on the circuit but um, like we said before, I think North Americans have a really good spirit in in general, and we we travel so much, <laughs> like the whole winter, and we're we're never home, so we're each other's family, and I think that's I think we get really hyped and inspired by other people's performance. Like for me, I was freaking out when Val won. <laughs> I looked at my heart rate, and I was just like at one fifty when she was going down, and it was just so inspiring and we all know what we've been through to get to get there and Val had crazy injuries and um for her to be back and to have a statement like that win both runs like she did it was is so cool and so inspiring yeah i can imagine and you it just that just kind of lifts everybody up huh yeah exactly and we we talk to each other which is to, to each other like i remember at the olympics last year um i was on the bike beside jack, beside jack and was already skiing so well and just asking him what change and exchanging, you know, is pretty fun. Yeah, that's cool. Now I'm curious, as you develop your slalom skiing, is there a slalom skier you like to watch? And do you have like a male and a woman's slalom skier or, or, or how do you pick those? Um, oh, that's a tough question. I feel like I, I watch everyone. Um, well, for sure, Michaela, when I, like I had the chance to train with her um a few times, not this year, but um the last couple of years, and I can all you can always learn from from Michaela and yeah um when you know I I take things from each athlete like Wendy I really like watching how much she she hammers and like crazy and still make it happen and um but yeah I feel like on the on this girl side I watch basically everyone and try to get little bits and pieces from from everyone that i i can work on my scheme bring to my scheme yeah i like that i like that i think i have kind of a similar approach and you know do you watch guys or or women that have the same skis as you is that something you ever think about like only people on razi no not really i've i've actually never thought of that i feel like i watch more people with the same like body type like i, I would yeah. not watch yep, someone that's like five feet tall because i feel like we're not never gonna ski the same um so i feel like i i watch a lot like when i were the same height well Miguel is a bit smaller than me but i definitely try to watch people with the same style a bit and same yeah body type uh-huh. Would you say would you say you w- mostly watch women for for getting kind of tips and tricks? Yeah, well, because I I analyze a lot like the races because I can compare it to what I'm competing with. Yeah. Um, but I I do watch all the men's races more like live, but um, or if I have the chance to to train beside guys um in the in the prep period, then I watch their video a lot, but. For me, I think what works the best for me is to really compare how to be faster in the same course as I did. Um, so I yeah. really compare the line compared to my line or the position and where the, the release is. And it's easier for me to, to bring it back to my skiing when I've done the same thing because I know how it felt when I was going down. So I can more associate how I think they felt doing that motion or that movement um or taking that line so it's it's it works better for me 
Yeah. Cause I always wonder like if, if it would be useful for you to train in the same course as, as one of the male world cup skiers, if, if you guys could do cross-gender training, cause cross-gender training feels like it only happens in college, but it, sometimes <laughs> it feels beneficial. Yeah, definitely. I love training with, with guys, um, in college and, for for the mindset too, like guys and girls don't train the same at all, and <laughs> it was it's yeah. really good and um, definitely helps for for college races to train in a bit bigger holes with with guys and uh, really wide <laughs> groups. It's very different, um, but I definitely learned a lot from that. So I think it would definitely be useful. I actually had the chance to train with Will one day uh, before World Champs, oh, and nice. that was cool too to to watch how he's doing things and talk about skiing because i think guys and girls also see skiing a bit differently and because we have different strengths and weaknesses so it's it's interesting to to exchange and to learn from it for sure yeah now this just popped into my head as an engineer do you think i guess because women's body types have slightly wider hips compared to their body do you think at the end of the day it's hard for a girl to look at a guy skiing and kind of replicate it because we have different body types is that something you've ever thought about <laughs> well <laughs> i no not like in that way but like definitely you know guys are physically stronger than girls and definitely the the mechanics of the body are are different and um we're definitely definitely not going to be able to do certain things that guys do and or just if you compare it just starts i'm never gonna attain the same speed at the second gate as most of the guys so i have to ski the first two gates differently because it's mm -hmm. it's harder to ski or not harder but different to ski a gate when you have less speed so for that example it's it's totally different i have to we have to adapt in a different way but at the same time it's like it's skiing is skiing like the the yeah. technical points are the same but we're gonna for sure achieve the same technical point in a different way i think yeah definitely as an engineer or a, or a computer scientist these things that you do outside <laughs> of skiing um do you you obviously uh, can wrap your head around complicated ideas. Does it ever feel like you're overthinking skiing? Do you ever fall into that trap or is skiing your place where things are simple? <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned this because this year I've been, um, yeah, I've been definitely told that I, I think a lot. <laughs> uh -huh. um, but for me, I think it, it works. Like, I, I don't think I think more in stressful situation than less stressful situation i think i i need to think like i'm not the person that listens to music in the in the start or between runs i i like being in my head and and um i definitely watch a lot of video and i think that's the, the biggest thing i did after after um spindler before world champs i did a huge video analysis <laughs> of myself and others um after the race to to see what i can improve and i think it's for sure it can be a weakness sometimes but i, I use it as a strength and i i think it's it's good for me to to think a lot <laughs> yeah wait when you say a big video analysis what does that mean you just sit down for a couple of hours and look through all the video do you write notes what does that look like yeah i watched the sections um different sections so i'm gonna watch my pitch for example and watch Michaela's pitch and Lena Dewar and everyone or whoever is fast that day in that section and um, analyze body position line um, and see how I was the same, how I was different. If I think how I was different was better or worse. And then I I decide which points I want to bring into, into training. And then um, it's really important for me to also visual, visualize it after to try to to get a sense of how it's going to feel to do it and um, keep it simple. Like if sometimes I see 15 things or I can see, oh, she has, like I'm not going to say, oh, she has an arm uh, aligned with her shoulder. Like it's not going to make a difference. But I think for me is to see what is different and then find one thing that's going to fix the eight things that I see. You know? 
Yeah. yeah I can't think about eight things at the same time, but if you find one thing that can fix all the consequences, because sometimes being backseat is a consequence of how you exit the turn. So if I focus on exiting the turn, then I'm not going to be backseat and my arm are not going to be in the air and then I'm going to have a better beginning of my next turn. But the only thing I need to think is about how I end my turn and fix all those three things, you know? Yeah. Yeah, no, I usually <laughs> just end up looking at eight different things and going, oh, I could probably think about eight, eight different things. Yeah. <laughs> and it never works out. You watch yeah. yourself ski and you go, oh, man, that's, that's, let's <laughs> go back to the drawing board. Let's find one focus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so to go along with that uh, line of thinking and, and this sort of methodical approach, do you play a lot with your equipment? I, I f- feel like I've asked the past three guests this, but people seem to love to hear about uh tweaking equipment so do you is there anything crazy you do not really well i feel like my teammates would disagree but (laughs) um (laughs) i'm pretty slow at taking decisions so uh, it takes me a long time to really trust my setup in the summer like i'm not going to play with boots canting um lifters skis it's more i'm going to try two things at the same time like only two things I can do more otherwise I get confused and I'm going to eliminate eliminate things but I take a really long time before I decide like I usually decide um like a week before levy and which is November and I start testing in the summer so it takes me a long time before I can really trust the one thing I want to use but then in the season if I have a bad race I'm not going to say oh it's because of this I need to change this I think that's why I take so long because I want that setup to be the one I trust and then I cannot blame it later on. It's really what I like in the most conditions because sometimes you can have a ski that's better in one condition and less in the others, but I don't want to have to think about that in in um, before the race. So I think the one thing that I trust that I can do really fast. That's a really good way to do it. And then you get to the end of the season, you go, okay, now we can think about it, but no point in blaming it in the middle of the year. No, exactly. And then if there's a new a new ski or a new setup that arrives, um, I can test it. But then I know my reference ski is the one thing I love. So if I feel amazing to the thing to the, with the other thing I try, then it's worth it to try a second day. But if... I tried one one or two runs and it doesn't feel like even if it feels a little bit maybe better than my setup it's it's out I really need to to feel like it's it can be a game changer you know yeah now as we're ending the as we're getting to the end of this interview uh one question that I think I'm going to start asking guests and I'll start with you is if you could change one or maybe two things about the fist world cup tour to make it more fun or more relevant or more popular amongst people who don't watch ski racing what would you do and you can do whatever crazy thing (laughs) um i would make um the tv rights free (laughs) so we can have (laughs) more racing viewing in canada and I would definitely um, go in more places all around the world because I think we're doing it a lot of Euro stop, which is great. And it's I know like Europe is a big, a big place for for ski racing. But I think if we want to bring hype to ski racing in the world, we need to have World Cups everywhere in the world. I agree. I agree. I think we should go to Kyrgyzstan or Tajikistan. <laughs> oh, <laughs> no, wow. Did you know the, the like, there's a huge amount of glaciers in the whole like Middle Eastern Istan region, like uh, Tajikistan, Kyrgyzstan. I think it's pretty uh, iffy politically there, but if we could figure <laughs> out that, uh, you know, that's something people don't think about. And I've had this conversation with a few people off the podcast that, um, so I think you make a great point. Yeah, we could find so many glaciers. Like just even in Canada, I think we're the country with the most glaciers. But there you can, go. Yeah, and we can only ski on one, so it's it's crazy. 
but yeah, I think there's so much potential for ski racing everywhere in the world and we should, we should use it. Yeah. I mean, people are, are worried about climate change, but they forget that there are places in the world that will have snow for a very long time. It's just not, it's not always going to be Southern Germany. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, so the question I always ask my guests at the end is if there's anything that we didn't talk about that you want to talk about, or if there's anybody you want to shout out like sponsors or friends and family, basically the floor is yours. Um, I think we touched a lot of things. Um, I need to keep some secrets, you know, for maybe next podcast or who knows what happened. But Absolutely. shout out to my brother to not saying too many things because I you tried to get information and I was scared what he would what he shared with you. But I guess he well, stayed calm. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, you know he he uh yeah. I guess I can blow your cover on one more thing. He said that you were a bit of a procrastinator. Um, but I think that should give <laughs> procrastinators everywhere hope because like yeah. you're working on your second degree, so it's it's, it's uh, not the worst thing in the world. And I think that's why I perform well under pressure. You know, I train myself since a young age to do everything last minute and perform under pressure. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I kind of interrupted you. So is there anything, anything else you wanted to say? Um, no, just thanks for having me. It was, it was pretty fun. And you, I think you're doing a really good job to, to bring hype to ski racing with this podcast. And it's, it's good. That's the goal. We're trying to make yeah. ski racing more fun, more info about ski racing, more stories told. So thank you for visiting Arc City. Yeah, thanks. It is now time to take a nibble of the past. That's right. It's the skiing history nugget of the week. So my grandfather sent me an excerpt from the book, I Skied the 30s by Bill Ball. And it's kind of a crazy story of the first downhill race at Montremblant in 1932. And I'll start reading here. By 1932, the Kandahar Trophy had been received and the Redbirds had been appointed sponsors of the race. On March 12th, officials and racers skied into Pinotos from Lac Mercier Station and later climbed the mountain on skis. Some hardy spectators were present. As yet, no clearing had been done, and Jack Rabbit led a party of 22 skiers, some of whom had come from Toronto, up the mountain. In the race down, he was the first away carrying a stopwatch, with racers starting at one-minute intervals from a synchronized stopwatch held by the last competitor, Bill Drysdale, who then started himself. The upper part of the trail, it was not yet a course, from the tower to the fire ranger's cabin had a slope of about 30 degrees and was covered with spruce and balsam, rocks and windfalls. Competitors chose their own pass through this tangle. The lower part of the course was relatively easy, and contestants followed more or less the same route with, of course, a few unintentional side excursions. So these side excursions, they, they go on to describe, were pretty crazy. Like there was a man stuck in a tree. Um, there was uh, two people who ran each other over. One ran one over, and then the other ran the other over later in the course um, so everybody lost a piece of equipment it's kind of a crazy <laughs> race ultimately i'll start reading again the winner of the downhill was harry pangman whose skillful pole riding carried him across the finish after 15 minutes and 10 seconds into first place peter glepsy was second and george yost third and I'll stop here to mention that pole riding was a technique, I think, where they basically sat on a pole to slow themselves down. And they had all sorts of different methods for slowing themselves down because they were dealing with these soft boots and, and wooden skis, and there wasn't a whole lot of control on steep, perhaps icy terrain. Um, and I'll keep reading here. Other more ingenious but less skillful racers dragged trees behind them like sea anchors. Peter Reynolds, a British transfer student, tied burlap strips around the tails of his skis to ease himself down that first appalling stretch, but lost valuable time hacking them off with a blunt hunting knife when he reached the open stretch. Credit for the most bizarre de 
device must go to Buddy Oliver, inventor turned skier, who appeared with what Diegville was to describe as a collapsible, non-collapsing pike perch or pole. This gadget, which now rests in the Canadian Ski Museum in Ottawa, consisted of two aluminum tubes. On the end of one was a conventional ski ring, but to the end of the other, Buddy had affixed a double hoe-like blade. The ringed pole fitted into the tube that carried the hoe for pole riding. Buddy rode this infernal device witch fashion down the upper steep wooded and trailless pitch, throwing up a plume of snow like a rooster tail from a hydroplane. Every so often he took off from a bump and once landed in a spruce tree. His battle plan was to remove section one from section two when he reached this more skiable part of the course and pull off with two ski poles. The separable parts of the course could not be separated and Buddy finished his adventure holding the now useless but still precious gadget like a drum majorette's baton. So I'm not sure that FIS would nowadays approve of such devices, but back then everyone was using any sort of gadgets they could to help them get down the trail and they would choose their own paths, which was kind of fun. The statistics of the run were uh, the length, 1.87 miles, the drop, 2,000 feet, and the slope, 0 to 30 degrees. Later on over the years, the course would become wider and the skis would become better and it would eventually turn into the classic downhill racing that you know today. But anyway, I thought it was fun to take a trip down memory lane on the way downhill racing used to be. Well, that will do it for us here this time in Arc City. I want to thank you all for listening. I really appreciate you guys. I've especially enjoyed meeting people that come up to me on the mountain and tell me that they listen to the podcast. That makes my day because I started this podcast to tell more stories and get more ski racing wisdom out in the world. And it kind of feels like it's working. I also want to thank everyone who's bought Arc City and Jimmy Who merchandise. It's actually really helped to fund my season. So thank you. If you're interested, go to jimmykrupka.com or you can get there via arccity.org. The hoodies and sweatpants are really fuzzy inside and the long sleeve t-shirts are awesome. Also, I know the stickers are expensive, so if you message me your address, send me a note, um, I can send you something. I can send you some stickers for free. I'm going to take a short break for school, but in the meantime, if you've already all caught up on Arc City episodes, try listening to the podcast Ski Racing This Week, which I hosted for Ski Racing Media a few years ago. I made 18 episodes for them, including a really great one with Lindsay Vaughn. So check it out. I will see you all in a bit. Until then, don't forget to cherish your last turns this season, tell your friends about Arc City, and enjoy the warmth of spring. I'm Jimmy Krupka, and thank you for visiting Arc City. <laughs>